emotions at their basic, our data, their information. If we know that somebody is feeling um, angry, we know that that can impact the way they go about doing their work. If you're angry, we don't make our best decisions when we're angry. We're often rash. Uh, if somebody is feeling anxious, that can narrow their thinking. It doesn't allow them to be as creative and innovative as they could be. So by not addressing the emotions that people are feeling in their workplace, we're actually hindering performance. Hi, my name is Anita Novak, and I'm the author of this book. Welcome to season 12 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I'm joined by the fabulous Renee Eaton, who believes people and organizations should be filled with passion and excitement. She is driven to bring more of what makes us human into workplaces, that is connection, compassion, enthusiasm, and joy. Over the past 15 years, she's worked with leaders and their teams in organizations of all sizes on team building, strategic planning, communication, change management, and culture. She founded Work Plus Joy because she saw a gap in how organizations motivate and engage their employees and build their cultures. So her mission is to help people start talking about the F word at work. Welcome to the show, Renee. Thanks so much for having me, Anita. So I'm guessing the F word is fun, but then I realize I'm not right about that. So you <laughs> tell me, what's the F word at work? Well, it's okay because you are not the first person to actually think it's fun. And I think that's really, it's really insightful because the F word is feelings and it fits quite well because it's a four letter word, just like the the other one that we're not allowed to say at work. But I think people probably talk about the other four letter word more than they talk about feelings when it comes to the workplace, but feelings just like fun has become a taboo topic in a lot of workplaces. It's not professional. We don't get to have fun at work. If we're having fun, we're not working. In the same way, feelings have been swept under rugs. We tell people to leave them at the door. So actually going in and saying, hey, yeah, you have to pay attention to how people are feeling. We have to talk about this. We need to build this into our work in order to make sure that people are able to be and bring their best into the workplace every day. Why do you think people are so allergic to talking about feelings at work? I think it's just been culturally built into us. And a lot of times we have created this idea that feelings are soft and fluffy, right? And logic and data is the rational side of things, but feelings inform our thoughts all of the time. I mean, our feelings predispose us to specific actions and behaviors, and we have stories and values, beliefs that come out of this. People don't think motivated. They don't think determined. They feel these things. And on the flip side of it, they also feel unappreciated and they feel incompetent or they feel excluded. And these all interplay into how we build our cultures and what type of success that we have from that. Okay, so you know, I, I did an interview a long, long time ago with a woman named Mary Gordon, who mm -hmm. started an organization called Roots of Empathy that brings oh, yes. babies into classrooms, right? Love and it. she talks about emotional literacy and helping yes. children learn how to communicate their feelings. And in the act of being able to communicate their feelings, 
They also are able to understand what other people are going through. Anyways, the whole the whole uh, program kind of elevates the classroom and the school context to one where kids are caring and concerned about each other, as opposed to where you know sometimes there's bullying and other sort of un, uh, antisocial behaviors that kind of kind of kick in. I wonder if you are advocating for emotional literacy among leaders and among professionals and what does that look like? That's exactly it is that a lot of us don't have the words to actually describe how we're feeling. Uh, I remember reading about a a survey that Brené Brown had done with her team and over the course of five years they'd surveyed 7,000 people and people could only recognize three emotions as they were feeling them, anger, sadness, and happiness. And when you think of even if you were to ask people to list out you know, emotions, you might get, you know, 10, maybe some people would be five, maybe you'd get 20. But when you look at just the words we have for emotions, I think the last one I heard, it was like 43,000, 43,000. And so you think, well, how do I respond to somebody that I think is angry versus how do I support somebody that I think is irritated? Like there's a big difference between them. But if we don't have that nuance in our emotional literacy, to for me to look at how you're reacting and think Anita is irritated versus only thinking I only have the word for angry. Mm. I don't have the ability to go granular with that word. So how I'm able to support you or even words that emotion words that leaders might not even have for somebody who's feeling excluded or for somebody who's feeling lonely or for somebody who's feeling disappointed. We support people in different ways. So if we don't have the ability to name it, and then recognize it, it's more difficult for me to be empathetic towards you. I can't provide you with that support that you need in those moments. And in our workplaces, we don't even talk about (laughs) So like, we don't even give people the opportunity to try to figure out, this is how my work is making me feel in these moments. Or this is how this meeting makes me feel so that we can support people as they're going through their work processes. Got it. Got it. And I think the book that you're referring to by Brenda Brown is Atlas of the Heart, right? Yes. I love Atlas of the Heart is such a great book, such a great tool. Cause not only does it give you the words, but it tells you about how people might be predisposed to act in those moments or what they might be thinking or how they might, um, how those things might then impact the stories they're telling themselves. Sure. Sure. So we'll include information about that book in the show notes. Um, I want to ask you about, any pushback you get often I am told uh, by organizations oh we're a high we're, 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 we're what's the word that they use um, not productivity um, we're a high performance culture yeah. and all of what you're describing around empathy sounds really lovely but uh, I think it's going to slow us down and we're not going to achieve our KPIs like we, we have business goals we have metrics yes. you know So what do you say about that? Like touchy feely feelings, like sounds great. Something HR should take care of, you know, but. uh, Poor HR. (laughs) Well, the thing is, is emotions are data. And so when you get into an organization that is like, oh, that's the soft side. That's, you know, fluffy. Emotions at their basic are data, their information. If we know that somebody is feeling um, angry, we know that that can impact the way they go about doing their work. If you're angry, we don't make our best decisions when we're angry. We're often rash. 
Uh, if somebody is feeling anxious, that can narrow their thinking. It doesn't allow them to be as creative and innovative as they could be. So by not addressing the emotions that people are feeling in their workplace, we're actually hindering performance. Right. We're not allowing ourselves to get the best performance out of people. And we get people who are burnt out because when people are continually trying to suppress their emotions, not show them at the workplace, they have to do a lot more emotion work in systems that aren't supporting them. So we get people who become burnt out and not being able to be their most productive, their most creative, their most innovative or collaborate with team members in a way that's most effective. Right. So we've just lived through three years where everybody is burnt out um, yeah. by the change and the stress and anxiety and everything that COVID brought. Um, so what do you say to organizations where it's like, oh my gosh, now we, we already had our business to manage and now we have to manage people who are going through all this like global pandemic stuff. Uh, you know, we need a reprieve and now we have to still tend to their emotional needs on top of that. What do you say to that? If you don't, it's going to come back at you anyways. <laughs> like that, that's just the way it is. You, we cannot strip people of their emotions. Emotions are what make us human. And if we continue to ignore them, they're just going to come out in all kinds of different ways. And it doesn't have to be big. Like I think a lot of times when people think about emotional culture, they think it has to be these big programs or initiatives. It isn't. It's just the small things of checking in on people asking them how they're feeling or when we're um, talking about changes or designing new processes, how is this going? What's the emotional impact of this on people? Mm. And if we think that it's going to go this way or that way, then we can provide them of ways to manage or cope. People want to talk about their feelings at work. Oftentimes they just don't have the tools or the permission to do so. So when we start giving them that space, we start giving them the emotional vocabulary to do so then we can start getting that input out of people in order to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. But if you don't do it, it doesn't make it suppressing it that the whole idea of suppressing the emotions, it just ends up most of the time making them stronger emotions. Right. So we get somebody who feels irritated. I don't know why I'm stuck on irritated and angry today. There's so <laughs> many other ones, but you get somebody that's feeling irritated and they push that, we push that down. You can't be irritated. It doesn't mean it heads out the door. Like I actually like to look at it. If you're, if you're in a room with a bunch of people and a small fire breaks out and you notice the small fire and you're like, there's a fire over here, but nobody else hears you. And you're like, okay. And the fire gets a little bit bigger. So you get a little bit louder. Nobody listens to you. And then the fire is spreading all over the place. And that's when you start shouting, right. And you start waving your hands around. That's what happens with our feelings too. So when yeah. people feel like those, those things that they're going through at work are being ignored or suppressed, or they're not able to talk about them, that doesn't, it doesn't go away. It starts popping up in all of these different areas throughout the organization. And I bet the same thing can be said about sort of the political landscape, right? If citizens don't feel heard, then yes. guess what happens? Yeah. Okay. Well, we know where we're going to go with that, with that. So um, I'd love to just understand from your perspective, what an organization's emotional culture is like, how can you gauge that? What does that mean? How can you shift it? Right. So when we talk about cultures in organizations right now, a lot of times what we're talking about is cognitive culture. So cognitive culture is your mission, your values, your vision, your norms, all of the ways that we expect people to think and behave when they're at work. So it's the things that drive what you do, your systems, your processes, practices, 
often the cognitive culture is communicated through words. So we talk about it verbally in team meetings. We might have a poster in the wall. We have our mission on our website. The emotional culture is the emotions and feelings, including our fears that we experience while we're at work. So this includes everything that leads to people feeling comfortable expressing them or feeling like they've got to bottle them up inside. Uh, Sigal Barisade has done a lot of work in this area. Her colleagues continue to do so. So our emotional culture shows up in micro moments. So we recognize it in somebody's facial expression in a meeting or the body language of people that are standing in the hallway talking to one another. It's our rituals. It can be our decor. It can be our routines. It's often led by individuals themselves. So it's not being dictated from above. Like a lot of times we have value sessions among senior leaders and they decide what the values are going to be or what the systems are going to be. The emotional culture is led by all of the people within the organization. So the cognitive culture, thinking, emotional culture, feeling. When we get a gap, the larger the gap between these two cultures, that's when it becomes harder to build a healthy organization. So if we say we have a culture of, innovat of innovation, that's what we want. That's our cognitive culture. But our emotional culture is one of fear. We're going to struggle. So people aren't going to feel comfortable saying their ideas or trying risky things because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble. They're going to get their hands slapped. Maybe they'll get fired. So we're not going to be very innovative. If we say we value high quality care, that's our cognitive, but the main feeling amongst employees is overwhelm, then again, we have a mismatch. People cannot be their most empathetic or caring when they feel overwhelmed or burnt out by what's happening. So that's why the emotional side of it is so important. And we shift that by giving people space, by giving people permission to have conversations around feelings. So it can be little things like checking in during, you know, a Monday morning meeting. How are people feeling? It can be asking when people are going through change or conflict. How are you feeling in this moment? How do you want to feel? And what can we do to get you towards that? It can be teams themselves talking about what is the emotional culture we want to build for our team? What are the emotions that are going to help us be our most successful? What are the ones that might hinder us? But we know we're going to feel from time to time. The fact is, is we know that we're not always going to feel good at work. Sometimes, sometimes we don't feel good at work and that's okay. But what can we do now that we recognize them to help us manage or cope with them? What actions, behaviors, rituals can we put in place to make sure that we feel supported in those moments? And what other ones can we put in space to generate the emotions that are going to help us be our most successful? Hey there, I don't mean to interrupt a fabulous conversation. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that there are so many other great conversations on my YouTube channel. Over 120 episodes with already 25,000 views completely organic thanks to you my listeners viewers watchers please subscribe the world needs more empathy and you have a role to play so i'm curious because um one of the mandates that i worked on which was helping an organization develop a culture of empathy was a mm -hmm. med school overseas and they initially wanted to help me integrate more empathy in the curriculum for their physicians or their mm -hmm. physicians. And I said, that sounds great, 
but how about having more of that exist across the organization, starting from the top, so that the whole, it's not just as far downstream, it's like across the entire organization. They bought into it. We did some empathy sessions, and one of them was a design session. And I asked a bunch of questions on how um, the organization could provide opportunities for self-empathy to show up. What would that look like? Then empathy across relationships of all different directions. And then organization. What could the organization do to show more empathy for its um, senior leaders? And there it was interesting because three out of the five breakout groups all pointed to the same thing that could be changed for them to feel more empathy from the organization. And that was to create a, a staff lounge and they didn't have a place to meet to just hang out. So between that session and the final session, we worked together, the leadership actually emptied out a whole room, put down carpets, sofas, yoga mats, chess boards, like really created a staff lounge. And I was there for the big reveal. And I witnessed like 25 adults as if they were like opening Christmas gifts, you know, like it was something and so I share that story to say, it doesn't need a big strap plan. Like you just need to ask people, like, how can we create a more empathic culture? So that makes it sound simple, but what happens if, so for example, right now, there's a mandated return to work situation in a lot of places. And a lot of employees are finding the hybrid workplace, like much better for their overall lifestyle. And there's a natural tension. So how do you manage when, employees articulate something that they think would be helpful for their feelings at work. They would feel better at work and there's resistance because of the structural issues or just sort of like a, a gap between the leadership. Yeah. That's such an important one. I love the staff lounge thing. That's amazing. And that you're right. That isn't exactly a, a way of showing how those things can lead to actions. When we talk about the feelings, the return to work, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's so difficult because I see, I see what employees want. And, and when you look at the feelings you're looking, and a lot of times people are talking about it as a way of flexibility. When I look at it, I think the word that we need to probably be using is autonomy. People are looking for autonomy and it's a core aspect of motivation. When you feel like you have choice and freedom over how you do things. And then when you're being pulled back into an environment and you feel like you're losing that. And I think that you're right. There's the gap there. And I think in a lot of places, it is a control issue that's happening. So if you can get the senior leaders to start looking at, because we know that there's all kinds of data that's showing us that in a lot of cases, people haven't become less productive. They haven't performed at a lesser degree. They are happier and they're still able to collaborate. So the employees have the data on their side. And they have a very real need to feel a sense of autonomy. I think that in that case, it's getting the senior leaders to be able to sit down and ask, what is the emotion that's driving you to pull them back? Because I think that is what it is, because we can't say this is a rational, logical thing because the data doesn't support it. So what is predisposing them to act in this way? And in my case, I think it is a lot of times a fear of not knowing what's going on. And that's the, that's why I think a lot of people flip back to the cognitive side is the emotional side is the unknown. It's unfamiliar, it's uncomfortable, but that's the only way we can get to the root of some of these issues. And in those cases, I think it's senior leaders taking a really clear look at what am I worried about? Am I worried that I don't have the skills to lead 
a hybrid team? Like, am I worried that, or am I worried that people aren't going to think my job is as important? So I I'm getting a lack of status in these moments that is fueling me to want to pull people back in. So I can pretend to look over their shoulder and make sure they're doing things the way they're supposed to do. So I think it's a feeling of out of control mm-hmm. for many of the leaders in those situations. Love it. So you're certified as um, an emotional culture deck practitioner. What does that mean? Oh, the emotional culture deck. It is something that I've fallen in love with. So it is a game that was developed by a great organization called Riders and Elephants. Jeremy Dean heads it up. And what it is, is it is this simple little pack of cards. I should have brought them down from upstairs, but I know it's a podcast so people can't see them. Um, But it's a simple pack of cards that gives people the words for their feelings first off. So you have a series of white cards and a series of black cards. The black cards are all what we would more likely call desired feelings. And the white cards are the undesired or are negative. They're no good or bad feelings though. They all serve their purposes. But what it allows people to do is it allows, it's almost like a Trojan horse into the world of emotions. So they play a game. So you ask people, how do you want to feel to be your most successful? How do you not want to feel to be your most to, how do you not, what feelings are going to hinder you from being your most successful? And so you can just flip through cards. So it's, it's this ability for people to be vulnerable without necessarily feeling like it's a risky endeavor. So it gives them the words to be able to describe them. And it starts a conversation around emotional culture. This is what I need to feel and not feel. This is what the team needs to feel and not feel. And then we can start mapping out the whole emotional culture based upon this and have these discussions without people feeling too worried about the consequences of it. I'm going to include that in the show notes as well. The emotional culture deck. Love that. That's great. Um, how does supporting a strong emotional culture improve empathy? Let's yeah. talk empathy. Well, and I think a lot of that is what we've already discussed too, right? When we actually start giving people, well, we let people be human. First off, we're no longer telling them that you don't have feelings when you're at work, you know, leave those at the door. When you come in, they're not professional. We allow people to show up as their full selves. So we give them, we start giving them permission to have these conversations. We start instigating the conversations by asking people, how are you feeling? What's happening with the work? What does that impact does that have on you? We start um, giving them the tools to be able to have those conversations with one another to recognize what's going on. When we're setting up our cognitive culture, even in itself, we can start integrating the emotional culture into it. So when we're setting up systems and processes, or when we're making changes, we can ask about the emotional impact this is going to have on the people on our teams. And we can start training leaders to look at that emotional side, to lead with more empathy within their teams, to recognize what role they're going to have in that. Even things like emotional contagion within workplaces, when we mimic the facial expressions and the body language and the tone of other people, and then we feel their emotions and they spread throughout that. So, you know, I may show up to work feeling fine, but if I have a teammate that has a presentation that they're going to have to do and they feel anxious and I'm around them and then I all of a sudden I start feeling anxious, that allows me to recognize that, oh, maybe this isn't me, maybe this is them. And maybe I need to go and talk to them about it. If I don't have that understanding of how emotions can spread, then I'm just now an anxious person and that's impacting my work. So it allows us to work with other people. And and a lot of the work that people are doing these days is emotion work. When we have to collaborate with one another, 
and when we have to have Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, when we have to have the impression management of working with people, a lot of that is emotional labor that we don't recognize within people. So we can start putting in those practices. I see a lot of organizations where they don't allow their meetings to go back to back anymore. So people can have that breather because we end up with people who are burnt out and burnt out people have a very difficult time being empathetic or even kind. I know um, Christine Porras does a lot of work on incivility and one of the major causes of rudeness in workplaces is people feeling overwhelmed. So we don't have that capacity to be empathetic and to be kind with one another because we're just tired. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, I mean, in, in one of the processes, when I, when I talk about becoming a more empathic leader, I talk about the, as a very first starting point to actually have self-awareness about our, how we are ourselves feeling in any given moment. And I think so much of our culture and the way our education um, uh, has unfolded is that we spend most of our time in our heads and we, you know, are, are listening to our thoughts and we're reacting to our thoughts without paying attention to the emotional intelligence that our body has. Um, like when our bellies are full of butterflies or we're breathing shallow or we we're thirsty or cheeks are like, there's a lot of signals that our body is sending to share, to tell us how we're feeling, but we're not in the habit of discerning, oh, oh, that's how I'm feeling right now. Just to have that self-awareness is a big piece, I think, of, of having the capacity to manage other people's feelings too, because you know your own. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and the whole idea of when you when you can recognize that, I think of the name it to tame it, right? When you can recognize what's happening in your body and attach a label to it, and it allows us to become calmer. It yeah. allows us to get that space and that clarity around what we're feeling. My, I have two daughters and they're so tired of me because they'll come home and they'll talk about something. I'm like, how did that make you feel? <laughs> and, and they're like, oh, mom, stop. But it's so important. Like even in, in moments in our own household, um, my husband's an engineer. So very much of that. I'm, I'm winning him over step by step, but very much in a culture where emotions are soft and, and, and fluffy and touchy feeling, but I I'm slowly moving him over into the world of, of feelings matter. And he'll talk, he'll, we'll be in discussions in the kitchen with the girls and they'll be doing their normal, typical things and getting him frustrated and he'll react a certain way. And I'll stop and go, just so you know, girls, frustration is an emotion. <laughs> Daddy's being emotional right now. So you're right. Being able to recognize when those things are happening is, is so important yeah. to, then we get that, we get that, that chance to slow down and go, Oh, I'm feeling this way. How do I want to react yeah. with that feeling rather than just jumping right into the behavior? Yeah. And I think about sort of economics tries to be a science, but it's far from a science and behavioral economics showed up and said, we as humans do not make rational decisions. We are responding to our emotions all the time and that's found a place. And so I think this work that you're doing um, uh, is so important. So I want to ask two more questions before we we say goodbye. I, I, at a strategy level, I would just love to know some ways that organizations could start improving their emotional cultures and by de facto, obviously, increase empathy. Yeah. So the work that I do with organizations is is strategic in a way, and it is the fact of actually mapping 
what the emotional culture is. So being able to sit down, whether it's at an individual team level or at an organ, we've had organizations that map their entire emotional culture. So they will sit down with a senior leadership team and go, what do, based upon the work we're doing, based upon the industry we're in, the people that we have, what do they need to feel in order to be able to do their best work? So because our, our emotions are going to generate motivation. Yeah. So there are specific things that depending on the organization you're in, whether it's, you know, healthcare where you need high levels of empathy or whether it's um, in the high tech where you need people to feel innovative, they need to sometimes feel rebellious and free to take those risks. So what are the emotions that we need these people to feel? And then what are the aspects of their work that we know they're going to feel some of these undesired ways? And they map them out on both sides. And then they look at ways of how we're going to recognize when people are feeling these things and how are we going to recognize when they're not feeling the things we want them to feel. And then what are the things, the systems, the processes that we can put in place to support them? Like you talked about with your student lounge, having that lounge area for people to be able to decompress and show the emotions that maybe they need to vent or at least sometimes or feel cared for. So it is taking a very, it, it, we are taking a strategic look at emotions. We're taking the time to talk about them and see them as just as important as our finances. Yeah, and that can be applied to the family as well. Well, you can, you can totally map the emotional culture for your family or in a classroom. Like any of these situations where people are gathering, they have things that they're feeling and that they're gonna impact them. Oh, fascinating. So Renee, I, um, I always ask my guests at the end of uh, our, our podcast chat, um, if they, if, so I'll ask you, can you remember a time in your life um, where you were on the receiving end of empathy and what that meant for you? Such a big question. Cause I know that people are show empathy to me all the time. Um, but if I were to think of a specific instance, so as I said, I have two girls, they're 12 and 14 now. And uh, they've been going to the same daycare for, oh, since they were babies, since I dropped my first one off when she was a year old there. And uh, in the last couple of years, they've had uh, uh, early childhood education provider. She's a, a young woman. She's fantastic. And before my daughters were born, um, my husband and I, we had a son who passed away as an infant. And so it's one of those things where grief as an emotion is something that people are, our society is not great at dealing with. So that's one of the ones that a lot of times we like to tidy to the side after a while. But this, this, uh, this person is so lovely. My daughter mentioned her brother because we've always been very open. We celebrate his birthday. We do all those things and we have pictures around the house. So they've always known since they were little that they had a brother. But the, my younger daughter mentioned it one day to this woman and she talks about him all of the time. She'll mention him. She, she remembers his birthday. Like it's one of those things where the first time she was like, oh, Kira mentioned that, you know, Desmond's birthday was coming up and that was the first year, but she remembered it the next year. And it's just so nice. And I know there's a lots of parents out there who have gone through um, the loss of their children and to hear their names mentioned and to hear important dates about them remembered is just something that's so lovely. And every time she does it, you get that warm little feeling in your stomach that just makes you think what a wonderful person you are, that you take the time and you feel comfortable doing this for someone else. 
So your son's name was? Desmond. 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 And he was born? He was born December 14th. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. What a lovely story that this woman is uh, still bringing up his name. She remembers his birthday. That's uh, that's a very touching story. Um, and I'm glad that your your daughters feel his presence as a result of that. So, wow, thank you for that. I never know what kind of story I'm gonna I'm gonna hear when I ask this question, but I always like asking it because. I think for me, doing these interviews has become such a joy in my life to just be grounded in like why I do the work I do and how important empathy is. And there's all these sort of kind of very close cousins to empathy. So joy and optimism are two conversations I've had today. Feelings obviously matter to to empathy. Um, but this, this very last question is kind of always one that um, that that leaves me feeling anyways that you never know how much impact we can have on someone else's day or life by turning up the volume of empathy. Uh, and and so I guess that's the invitation always at the end of this uh, conversation is to invite readers, not readers, but um, listeners and, and viewers to, to think, well, what can you do today? Uh, so thank you for sharing that, Renee. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me. It's such a fantastic thing to be part of. Yay! So, well, thank you for watching, listening. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you so much for watching an episode of Purposeful Empathy. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to the channel and also consider picking up your copy of Purposeful Empathy. It's an invitation to dial up empathy in your life. The world needs more empathy. We need more empathy. What are you waiting for?